This podcast is supported by Americans for Medical Progress and was founded and created through the Michael D. Hare Fellowship, awarded annually to support projects that inform and educate the public about the critical role of animal research in furthering medical progress. The fellowship honors the late Dr. Michael Hare, a renowned board-certified laboratory animal veterinarian who dedicated his career to scientific and medical advancements and who was deeply committed to animal welfare and advocacy. Hey, everybody, and welcome into this edition of Lab Rat Chat. Before we get into the meat of the podcast today, I just want to simply remind everybody once again, as we do on every episode, to please go to Apple Podcasts or go to Spotify. You can hit pause. That's the beauty of podcasts. You can press pause right now. You won't miss anything, and you can go do that. After you rate and review the show, click that star on Spotify. Give us a five-star rating. Give us a one-star rating. No judgment. Whatever you feel like we deserve. Hopefully, it's a five-star. But if not, we understand. Once you're done doing that, resume the episode, and we'll still be right here. So here we are with this episode. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Today, we have a pretty exciting episode, I think, with rats and sleep apnea and autism. And I don't want to talk about it too much because I don't want to butcher the science. So if you will, I will let our guest, Amanda Vanderplow. Newly graduate with her PhD from University of Wisconsin-Madison out of the Michael Cahill lab over there. So thank you for joining us today, Dr. Vanderplow, and it's a pleasure to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited to be here and to talk about my work, and yeah, I hope I do it justice. (laughs) I'm sure you will. If you would, can you just tell us a little bit about what made you interested in science and research, you know, going back to the early days? And also just briefly to kind of describe your journey to get where you're at in your career today. Yeah, so I actually didn't have a very typical journey into science. I actually didn't always know I wanted to go into science or even like pursue a career in science. I actually remember when I was in high school, I was in biology and like our teachers announced that we were like doing rat dissections. And I actually like had a panic attack because I was like, I can't do this. Like, this is not my thing. I don't like science. And so I actually went to undergrad pursuing more of like, well, a psych major and a teaching psych major. While I was at undergrad was in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It was at a small private liberal arts college called Aquinas College. I actually became interested in a podcast at the time called The Naked Scientist. And so they were just talking about like a variety of different like recent scientific studies happening around the world. And I always found that I was like way more interested in just discussions that involved neurobiology. So I started taking my junior year at Aquinas biology courses. And so it just started with like basic biology. And then I got into more heavy courses where it was like neuroscience. And I realized in my last year of undergrad that I wanted to pursue a degree or like a science career. So I ended up applying to a bunch of different universities to get my master's because I was like, okay, well, done with undergrad. I don't really want to stay here any longer. And not that my experience was like terrible. It was amazing at Aquinas. I just was like ready to move on. And so applied for a bunch of different master's programs. And I ended up finding a PI up at Northern Michigan University in Marquette, Michigan, that was willing to take me on as like a very naive like scientist. I'd never worked in a lab. I barely had any like wet lab experience. And she was like willing to take me on. And that's kind of like where my science career really started. 
fell in love with like being in the lab, fell in love with working with animals and wanted to continue kind of investigating just various questions involving the brain. And I ended up applying to PhD programs, got accepted to a couple of schools, but UW Madison just really fit what I wanted to do and like where I wanted to go. And so I ended up coming down here and finding Dr. Cahill and finding his work really interesting. He focuses on a lot of neuropsychiatric disorders that like just really fit up like my tree of like what I wanted to do. And so joined his lab and studied sleep apnea during pregnancy, studied bipolar disorder, studied schizophrenia, just like the whole gambit of like neuropsychiatric disorders, um, neurodevelopmental disorders, and then just recently graduated. That's how I got here. (laughs) Well, congratulations. We definitely want to touch on the research that you had mentioned involving like the sleep apnea and the correlation between maternal sleep apnea and autism-like behavior. Mm -hmm. Maybe you Mm -hmm. can tell us a little bit more about what sleep apnea is and then why you found it important to study. Sleep is, I think this is well known, it's a fundamental requirement for health. So it actually mediates while you're sleeping, mediates a lot of essential molecular and like physiological functions. And so sleep can be disrupted in conditions such as sleep disordered breathing. And so sleep disordered breathing is basically recurring partial or complete airway obstructions during sleep. And so this can cause drops in your oxygen levels while you're sleeping. And that's also known as just like a scientific term. It's known as intermittent hypoxia. So hypoxia is just like decreased oxygen levels. And so these drops in oxygen levels can actually occur hundreds of times per night. Sleep disordered breathing, or I'll refer to it as like sleep apnea or obstructive sleep apnea, actually is quite prevalent in the population where it affects around like 3% of males and like 6 to 19% of females, just of like the typical population. And these numbers are actually on the rise with the obesity epidemic. And so it's often, I think, estimated around like 80% of these cases of like moderate to severe sleep apnea actually remain undiagnosed in healthcare. And so this is important because it's actually associated with like a lot of medical comorbidities. So it can increase hypertension in people, increase your risk for cardiovascular disease, heart failure. It can cause like a lot of or several neuropsychiatric like dysfunctions. And it can actually increase your risk for type 2 diabetes as well. One thing that's like really important and what we noticed as a lab is that sleep apnea is actually quite prevalent in the pregnant population, like more so than their females who are of reproductive age, but aren't actually pregnant themselves. And so it's actually been shown that pregnant women have an increased risk for developing sleep apnea during pregnancy. And so this is because of all of the physiological changes that actually happen during pregnancy. So you can have, you know, changes such as like weight gain. So you're getting pushed on your diaphragm or like changes in your hormonal concentrations can cause an increased risk for sleep apnea. And again, this is important because it's often undiagnosed and hard to recognize, especially in pregnant women, because when you're pregnant, you kind of expect, I think, to have issues sleeping. And so that might not always be the case. If you get treated for sleep disorder breathing or sleep apnea, you could actually probably, you know, have better sleep maybe. But yeah, bring it home just to tell you like how many pregnancies actually are affected by sleep apnea. It can get all the way up to 32% of pregnancies by the third trimester. 
And then that number can increase up to 50% in high risk pregnancies. So pregnancies that like present with obesity or advanced maternal aging. So, you know, a lot of women are waiting nowadays to have babies or if you have preeclampsia or hypertension. And so, yeah, we saw this, I guess, problem and we asked the question, okay, these women are having sleep disordered breathing during pregnancy. What happens? Like, is it an issue, first of all, for the mom? And then what about the offspring? Like, what are or the children? Like, what happens to the children later on? Like, does sleep disordered breathing actually cause or impact the mother and the baby? And so, yeah, that led us to investigate just pregnancy complications with the offspring and their neurodevelopment because we are a neuroscience lab. Yeah, that's cool. It's kind of shocking that you said 33% of males in the population. So, I mean, we're talking about like a third. Yeah, it can get up to 33% of males. Yep. I mean, I've heard lots of stories about people that just say they're always tired. They've always been tired. And then finally, they get diagnosed with sleep apnea and they say... After their diagnosis, they have the best sleep of their life and they finally feel rested again. It's crazy that you can just go, like you said, hundreds of times per night or so. You can have these events where you're, I don't understand all the physiology of it, but where you stop breathing or you at least become hypoxic to some point. And that happens every night. It's shocking that people can go so long in life and not know. And sleep apnea can cause you to have like, you wake up every night too. Like when you're like having those decrease in oxygen levels, it causes you to wake up and almost take a breath again. You're not actually conscious of that like wakefulness, if that makes sense. So a lot of people don't know that this is happening to them. Yeah. Scary. It's crazy that 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 could happen and you don't even know. Well, thanks for explaining all of that. With studying sleep apnea and then the correlation between, you know, maybe its effects on newborns and then possibly having some autism-like behavior associated with it. How did you then go from there to finding an animal model such as the rat to study sleep apnea? How do you have a sleep apnea model? Like, how do you know the rat is having sleep apnea or do you just mimic sleep apnea in some way by making the rat hypoxic? And then how do you test the effects that you're introducing in the lab? Seems like a lot of questions on the developing like rats or in utero. So we can break that down and if we can go back and I can re-ask things if you need to. So Sure. Yeah. I'll start by just answering, I guess, why we use rats or like why a rat model. So especially in terms of using a rat model for sleep apnea, it is possible to use other animal models. Um, you can use pigs or sheep or even mice. Rodents are actually used quite often to study sleep apnea because intermittent hypoxia or that decrease in blood oxygen levels is... So that's a hallmark feature of sleep apnea. It's really easy to replicate the core consequences of sleep apnea that you see in humans within rodent models using hypoxia. We don't like go in there and like wake them up every night, you know, several times a night. That would be like sleep fragmentation. So we can just mimic the hypoxic portion of it. And that's good enough to mimic sleep apnea. And so one reason we don't use mice is because mice actually have higher metabolic rates than rats. And because of this, they're able to have this adaptive response to adjust their oxygen levels. And so it actually takes a more severe hypoxic paradigm in order to mimic sleep apnea within mice. 
So instead of we lower their oxygen rates to 10% instead of 21%, which is normal oxygen levels in the rats, but in mice, you would need to go down to like five or 6%. And that's just like a more extreme severe form of hypoxia. And so using rats, because they're not able to alter their oxygen systems as well, and they don't have that adaptive response, it allows us to create this hypoxic model or sleep apnea model in pregnancy as a more mild to moderate form of sleep apnea rather than a severe form. And so the mild to moderate kind of stimulates sleep apnea in a more clinically realistic manner. And you can relate it back to humans better rather than mice. I just had a thought. It just might be random. As far as pregnant women, do any of these smartwatches Nothing that we have is like a pulse ox, right? That we can measure. So Apple watches actually can read out your pulse ox levels, but I think you need to actually ask it in the moment to do it. It doesn't constantly read it out. So the new Apple watches do, not older ones. To elaborate on your random thought, Jeff, what about those watches that like track how you slept at night? Because like I know my husband has one of those fancy watches. Like how does it gauge when he's in a deep sleep versus like now we're off topic, but now I'm curious. No, these are important questions, right? I'm just trying to figure out like if you're pregnant or either way, if you're prone to, you know, sleep apnea, or maybe you have sleep apnea, if there was a way to where you could detect it like on your own, if you're like either the, the sleep recording devices, like the watches that tell you how deep you sleep, or if you could get it to measure oxygen levels while you sleep and you could see dips or whatnot, or just trying to think of. That would be interesting or even being able to see, right? So like one of the indications of being in a deep sleep is REM and like just being able to like monitor that all at like different times and making sure that you actually enter REM and you're in REM for a very specific amount of time. But that's a little bit harder to Hmm. measure. It would just be a good, I mean, if so many people are suffering from it and they don't know that they're even suffering from it, it'd be nice to have some sort of tool like that to where I feel like they could almost market it in a way like, hey, Look at it. There's lots of people out there. Almost a third of males, almost a third of people that are pregnant by third trimester, and almost what you said, 16 to 17% of just females in population. That's a big number if you add it all up to where it's like, hey, let's try to solve. Let's get to the bottom of this. See if we can diagnose more people and get them sleeping better. And especially, I think as we'll talk about a little bit more, prevent possible effects to, you know, the developing babies that are in utero. So in your opinion, something we kind of try to touch on occasionally in these episodes, would there be any way to conduct this research without using animals, using computer models, the so-called organ on a chip, or some sort of alternative Uh without animals? For our purposes, I'm going to say no. Literature on humans, especially like pregnant women and pregnant women with like sleep apnea is incredibly limited in order to actually mimic that sort of system within a computer model or an organs on a chip, it's just not possible just because there's so many factors that go into being pregnant and then studying the offspring of pregnancy, it wouldn't be an accurate readout. And so rodent models in this case are actually extremely valuable in helping us understand how this disorder within sleep actually impacts not only the mother, but also the offspring. And so that would be really hard to mimic in a computer model or, you know, organs on a chip or anything else like that. And obviously there's the whole ethics thing of not being able to test pregnant women because if they have sleep apnea, you should treat them for it. Yeah. I mean, as we always talk about, we talk about alternatives quite a bit. I mean, it all sounds great. We'd all love if there was, you know, an actual viable alternative that we could depend on that was reliable, accurate, but unfortunately, 
it's just not there yet. The ideas are out there. They're just, we're not able to completely, you know, reproduce what we see physiologically or what we don't see or don't even understand yet. That's happening physiologically. So we can't then take what we don't understand and apply it to an organ on a chip or a computer simulation or something. That being said, you know, we always kind of like to help our listeners understand the potential applications of, you know, your research and what you're doing with these rats and how you're studying sleep apnea and then the effects on newborns possibly, you know, and, and as those newborns age. What have you learned from your research on the effects that, you know, the hypoxic events have on newborns? And how do you possibly see your research being applied to human medicine, whether it's treating the mom or treating newborns after they're delivered or just our understanding of how the disease process works? I guess like to start actually both sleep apnea in pregnant women and autism spectrum disorder, incidences of them have been increasing worldwide. And we can say that, at least for autism, that maybe those incidences are increasing because the diagnosis or diagnostic criteria has changed a bit. But I think it's also important to note that there are things that have been changing in the environment and been changing just within humans' body or women's bodies that can also lead to the increased risk for developing autism. And so one of those things would be, or at least we're trying to push, could be sleep apnea. And I think our paper and the work that we've done actually kind of helps push that hypothesis. And so in terms of sleep apnea during pregnancy, one thing that I would like to know is that it's not studied as much. So there's been like several small scale studies that have kind of reported a potential correlation between moms or pregnant women having sleep apnea and an increased risk for developmental vulnerability within specifically male children. But there's actually been like no long term or large scale studies that have been conducted to examine these associations and how they actually may affect the offspring's development. Doing our research and developing this animal model is important because, well, first of all, it's unethical to allow pregnancy to proceed with, like in a mother without actually, who has sleep apnea without medical intervention. But, you know, it allows us to potentially accelerate our understanding of this disorder and hopefully provide insight to medical doctors about how important it is to screen for sleep apnea during pregnancy and treat it hope that that answers that question. That's a really interesting point because I have two small children and I can say Mm -hmm. that I don't think the doctors ever asked me seriously. Like they would say, oh, how are you sleeping? And you joke and Mm -hmm. you say, oh, pretty bad because you're pregnant. Mm -hmm. And that's like the end of the conversation. I think the idea of kind of prompting them to screen, especially people who might be predisposed you mentioned the geriatric pregnancies, which I hate that yeah, term, high, but that's what they call You can them. say high risk, high risk <laughs> okay. pregnancies. So yeah. <laughs> you know, I think yep. that's a valid concern that nobody's yeah. really delved into. Yeah. And especially with the increasing like obesity epidemic, it's right. um, sleep apnea is also increasing alongside that. So it's kind of inconvenient to screen for sleep apnea because don't you have to like go there and sleep and be hooked up to monitors and all of that? Like there's no easy way. Yeah. And treating it is also not easy. So I guess kind of like what they do right now, what I, how I understand it is there's a lot of like surveys that are given. And so it's kind of like up to the mom to answer these surveys accurately. It's hard to know when you're sleeping again, whether or not you're like actually having sleep apnea because sleep apnea can present as snoring all the way up to like the intermittent hypoxia. So it's quite can range. 
there's surveys and yeah, you'd actually have to go in and do a sleep study and it's very inconvenient. And then also treating it, the gold stars right now, CPAP machines. It's not fun for anyone to be on a CPAP machine. They're incredibly loud. And so also addressing that and how we treat sleep apnea Hmm. would be important to consider. My brain is spinning right now trying to think about like, what was I like when I was in my third trimester? You know, (laughs) you just sort of play Mm -hmm. those things back. I mean, probably not sleeping, whether or not you have sleep apnea or not. So, Mm -hmm. right. Just not sleeping. Now that I have the kids, I'm not sleeping just because the kids keep you awake. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a condition we can treat with that? (laughs) (laughs) Parental apnea? I don't know. Is that (laughs) fragmentation? Is yeah. It's been rough. That's funny. Well, no, we appreciate you coming on the show. Are there any like sort of final statements or thoughts you want to get out there um, that we haven't previously covered that you think the public might want to know or something involving your research? Just that we're going to continue pushing that sleep apnea is important to consider, especially during pregnancy and that, you know, it does have these impacts on offspring. And I think we're showing that pretty clearly within our animal model and that, you know, I hope our research gets a lot of attention. It starts to be taken more seriously that women need to be treated for sleep apnea or at least screened for it as like just a standard. I think that's it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it's incredibly important to screen for it. And I really hope that this impacts the medical field in some way. At some point, the medical field moves a little bit slower behind research, but I hope it catches up soon. Yeah, absolutely. And you may have said this, but one of your statements there at the end reminded me, how do you test for autism-like behavior in a rat? Sure. So I want to be clear when we say that these rats have autism, we say autism relevant behaviors. So we can never actually say that they have autism, right? That's a human condition. However, we can say that based off of some behaviors and cognitive and behavioral behaviors that they display can be autism relevant. So that's just a variety of different behaviors that we put the mice through. And depending on how they perform on them, we can determine whether or not they are cognitively or behaviorally impaired compared to the controls. So the normal animals. One really important one that I think helps us kind of make that distinction is social behavior. And so a key hallmark of autism is impaired social and communication skills. And so our animals, specifically the offspring, the males, show impaired social behavior. So not only wanting to engage in social behavior, they don't seem to have the motivation to actually engage in it. By that, I mean that they prefer to hang out with an empty cage with nothing in it rather than a cage with a novel stranger in it, if that makes sense. If not, I can try to re-explain it. Yeah, no, I think it makes sense. Makes sense to you, Danielle? Yes. Makes yeah, sense yeah. To me. So sort of yeah. almost like yeah. maybe some like sensory input kind of behavior. Maybe they prefer not to have the extra stimuli or yeah. something like that. Yeah. And so kind of like after behavior in order to like further validate that it might be autism relevant, we also did studies with their actual brains and looked at structure of their brains, which kind of mimic what's been seen in human autism or in brains of individuals who have ASD. All right. Well, thanks for explaining that. We appreciate it. Last chance for anything else you want to say. You could say it now. Yeah, sure. Check out our lab, uh, Michael Cahill's lab at UW-Madison. We're doing exciting stuff. And I know I'm leaving soon, but I know they're going to continue to hopefully make an impact on the field. Yeah, for sure. It sounds like definitely it's an area we have not talked about on this show. 
I could assume, I guess, that there's a model for everything out there. But the sleep apnea model is one I had never really thought about. And I feel like it could have huge you know, implications in the medical field, provide benefit to a lot of people, pregnant or not. You know, maybe we could have some positive medically relevant, you know, things come out of this. So thanks for, you know, everything you've done for your research. Thanks for joining us today. That being said, thanks everybody for listening. And again, please go rate and review the show on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We appreciate everybody for listening. Amanda, thanks for joining us. You were great. And we all learned a lot. Thanks so much for having me. All right, everybody. We'll talk to you next time. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. 